It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. There's something weird going on with Facebook. You know, I have a lot of Facebook followers and I don't know, was it a year, year and a half ago? Two years ago, uh, Facebook quite openly changed its uh, algorithm, said it was going to de-emphasize news and play up family and friends. And anybody in the news business, I think, felt this. And I just saw, you know, when you I would post things from Media Buzz, which I hope you got a chance to see uh, yesterday and also hope that you had a good weekend. Um, the number of people who it would reach plummeted to like a few hundred and it didn't matter what it was or what the topic was or whether I was just posting a column or just a random comment. That was it. So this morning, and I think this has to do with all the attention that Facebook is getting. I took a look at some of the media buzz segments that I posted on uh, the show page on Facebook and my personal Facebook page and the numbers had skyrocketed. Suddenly, I saw one, I saw a woman, this must, must be considered hot. 3,000 people reached as opposed to, you know, four or 500. 100 comments, 75 comments on another one. And Facebook also has a weird thing where it doesn't show you all the comments. It just selects a fraction of the comments. I want to see all the comments. I, this is not a coincidence. Either something has gone wrong today in a good way. Or Facebook is uh, thinking, you know, it's got to get a little more engaged with Elon Musk, you know, dominating the news and Twitter dominating the news. I wanted to talk a little bit before we get into it. I know what you want to hear about, and I'm ready to give it to you, uh, about layoffs. You know, the CNN layoffs, uh, hundreds of people laid off, on-air talent, people like Chris Saliza and reporter Martin Savage and others. Um you know, they'll probably land on their feet and find other jobs, uh, but also, you know, many, many, many behind-the-scenes producers and people like that. It's painful. It's painful for everybody, and I never celebrate that. And headline news is not doing any more original content, so you don't need a headline news staff. No live original content, that is. Um, but that's not only at CNN. Gannett is laying off. Uh, I mentioned the other day the Washington Post magazine is shutting down. Ten people lost their jobs there. Uh, the magazine has done a lot of good work over the years. And then I just saw this the other day. Washington Post has laid off Sarah Kaufman, its Pulitzer Prize winning dance critic. Now, it's true that there's only a few full-time dance critics left at any newspapers. But here's a you know, veteran writer who won a Pulitzer Prize and she's gone. She's quoted as saying, by eliminating the dance critic position, and all that dance coverage can be, the Washington Post is narrowing its arts journalism and its scope. I can't fathom why this institution is shutting itself off to what dancers and choreographers have to say about our lives and the world we live in. That's a pretty classy thing. She's not making it about herself. She's saying this is an important part of the arts world. So, um, you know, I'm sure... Somebody looked at, well, how many hits does it get online and that kind of thing. I get it. Uh, so you would think if you won a Pulitzer Prize and if you, the quality of your work had not declined, the paper would want to keep you. I mean, it's not like Jeff Bezos can't afford it 
And I think the Washington Post has hired lots and lots of people who were, you know, like social engagement uh, mavens and video people. And of course, you got you need that to compete in the digital world. Anyway, let's get to number one, the Twitter files. So Friday night, I mean, I'll never get that two hours back, right? Elon Musk is promoting this, a huge scandal, the Twitter files. We're all going to finally see it. And then it turns out he hands it off to Matt Taibbi. Now, Matt Taibbi is a guy I have a lot of respect for. He, for years, wrote for Rolling Stone. He's now at Substack. He is an independent journalist who was asked to do this. Now, Taibbi did say, as a matter of full disclosure, that um, he, he had to agree to certain conditions in order to get access to these Twitter files, which, by the way, in a chat the next day on Twitter spaces, which was done from Musk's private plane, and there were technical difficulties, uh, Musk said that he hadn't read the Twitter files or hadn't read most of it. So he made such a huge deal of this, he hadn't read it, and he hands it off to a journalist. Okay. So not to divert onto this, but immediately... People said, well, Matt Taibbi, he's a clown. I can't trust him, you know, because he not only listed, not listed, uh, aggregated some of the emails behind the scenes stuff, which I'll get to in a second, but, you know, he framed it in a certain way. And he said that Democrats had much more access to Twitter people through more channels than did Republicans, although he made the point that both parties pressed Twitter to delete unfavorable tweets. Um, And I think, you know, Taibbi has kind of gone from being a, you know, pretty lefty lefty reporter to a guy who gives it to both sides. You know, he reminds me of Barry Weiss, who also got access to the Twitter files, but hasn't yet posted anything. Former New York Times opinion editor who was kind of run out of there or felt she couldn't work there anymore. Oh, so so Taibi is a sideshow. You know, you like him, you don't like him. That's fine. Um, the frustrating thing was for journalists who were just, you know, trying to cover this story and I was trying to get the full context and everything for Media Buzz uh, yesterday, which we did, but you had to keep getting refresh, refresh, and you'd get one more paragraph. Then you'd hit refresh five times, and finally you'd get another paragraph. Like, why it wasn't just all tied up in a bow and posted at once, I have no idea. But it was a frustrating and crazy experience. Okay, so the most explosive quote was, to show how routine these requests had become, there was a line from one, it was a message from one Twitter executive to another. Remember, this is the old management, pre-Elon Musk. More to review from the Biden team. Handled. The, the only problem I had with that was there wasn't an example of what was handled. Show me the uh, request. It was said that the Biden team, remember, at the time, end of the 2020 campaign, this is all about the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Sorry if I backed into it. If you haven't been following it closely, you know, we knew a lot of this, you know, that the CEO, Jack Dorsey, wasn't initially involved, that Dorsey later went before Congress and apologized, said it was a mistake to block any transmission on Twitter 
of this New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop. Oh, and, and many in the media said, oh, Russian disinformation, this is crap, we're not going to cover it. Well, it's, you know, it was authenticated by the New York Post. And then, you know, a year and a half later, authenticated by the New York Times, authenticated by the Washington Post. Just last week or so, authenticated by CBS, which thought it had a great scoop. Anyway, but it didn't have an example. And at the time, there's no First Amendment issue here because there's no government involvement. Taibbi says no government involvement. At the time, it was the two campaigns, the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign. And the Trump campaign was pissed because Kayleigh McEnany, then the president's press secretary, was trying to tweet about the story. You know, of course, it's a story raising questions about the Biden and his son Hunter. It would be a natural thing to do. And her campaign was locked. Her, her account was locked. And so there was a kind of a miffed message from a Trump campaign official saying, well, I don't appreciate, you know, not being told that now you're censoring stories. And that's exactly what happened. Censoring stories. Um, the other interesting thing here is that Twitter executives themselves were going back and forth saying, how do we explain this? What are we going to do? Because they didn't have all the information. And somebody said, well, we'll just say it was hacked materials. We're, we're not allowing this to be tweeted or retweeted or shared because it's violating our hacked materials policy. Well, as it turns out, looking back, there was no hack at all. It was the guy at the Delaware repair shop where Hunter had left that laptop. Um, there was a general warning from sources about from federal law enforcement, federal law enforcement about possible foreign hacks, but no evidence of any government involvement, writes Taibbi. Um, they just freelanced it, is one how one former employee characterized the decision. Hacking was the excuse. But within a few hours, pretty much everyone realized it wasn't going to hold, but no one had the guts to reverse it. And that's what comes across. I mean, you have these sort of bureaucrats, you know, honestly grappling this. Well, what do we say? Well, we'll say hack materials. And somebody would write back, well, I don't know. Is it really hack materials? I don't know if we can say that. Uh, you know, unlike any organization, they were just trying to come up with the proper story. One of the guys who gets a little medal here is Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, who actually cares about free speech. And he wrote to one of the Twitter execs, saying, you know, there's a free speech issue here. You shouldn't allow, you have to allow this to be distributed on your platform, even though he acknowledged it hurts my side. You know, politically, it didn't help Democratic congressmen to have, you know, these tweets out about the candidate's son. But he did it anyway. And I thought that was really good. Um, so by and large, um, there was no smoking gun. There was no, you know, it kind of had been oversold by Elon Musk. And even some conservatives say, you know what? We knew a lot of this. There's not a lot new here. Now, it, there was certainly interest in seeing who complained about what. And there was a misconception that the Hunter Biden laptop story was essentially banned from Twitter and, and anybody who tried to tweet it was locked out of Twitter because the Biden campaign complained. That's not what happened. They did this before, you know, the Biden campaign even knew about it. What the Biden campaign complained about uh, what was what are referred to as dick pics. 
you know, or as I would put it in a column, pornographic images of the president's son, which were, some, which were on that laptop along with, you know, stuff of him using drugs. And, you know, you can like that or not like that, but it seems like a reasonable thing not to want to spread around the world. So bottom line, it, was kind, it wasn't a nothing burger. We learned a lot about what happened behind the scenes, but there was no aha moment about how horrible this was. Tybee pointed out that 99% of donations from Twitter employees went to Democrats and about 1% to Republicans. And therefore, Democrats had a lot more avenues through which to complain. Republicans had more limited avenues, but both parties complained. And I thought that's a fair job by Taibbi. I mean, beating up on Taibbi doesn't, you know, get away from that. And there was just, there was just some uh, bad language in there where it would say, uh, they would say, the Twitter execs would say, what are we going to do? We're effed. Yeah, I think we're really effed on this. And the last installment said, we got to get uneffed. <laughs> so for the, there was some amusement value as well. So then the Washington Post had a very fair story on this over the weekend, as did some others. Uh, the New York Times just didn't write about it, like for two days, just like it wasn't a story. And I'm thinking, well, how do you justify that? It's a major event. You could write a story saying, you know, there was nothing there, but you did write nothing. So today, or maybe it went up last night, the Times finally gets into it. And it does it as a kind of like, uh, you know, this is an amusing spectacle that went on in the District of Columbia. And, uh, you know, we're going to take a wry look at it. Um, not that we think there's that much news here. Musk and Taibbi frame the exchanges as evidence of rank censorship and pernicious influence by liberals, many others. Even some ardent Twitter critics were less impressed, saying the exchanges merely showed a group of executives earnestly debating how to deal with an unconfirmed news report that was based on information from a stolen laptop, except it wasn't stolen. As with many modern news stories, the Twitter files were quickly weaponized in service of a dizzying number of pre-existing arguments. Um, all that's true, except for the stolen part. And it even gets to Taibbi. Once a major voice of the political left, Mr. Taibbi rose to prominence, presenting himself as an unencumbered truth-teller. He's perhaps best known for labeling Goldman Sachs a vampire squid in an article that galvanized public outrage toward Wall Street. But his commentary about former President Trump diverged from the views of many Democrats. For instance, he was skeptical of claims of collusion between Russia and Trump's campaign, and his fan base shifted. Um, and and it did, in fairness, include, as I read on the air yesterday, Taibbi's pushback. Um, he was getting a lot of, imagine volunteering to do online PR work for the world's richest man, on a Friday night in service of nakedly and cynically right-wing narratives, said MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan. So he makes uh, Taibbi out just to be an errand boy when, you know, he did, I mean, if you, if you gave me the Twitter files, I would give you my take on it. Wouldn't be the same necessarily as Taibbi, but I, would, I wouldn't turn that down. Now, did Musk pay him? Probably. And therefore, there's that question. Okay, so here's Taibbi's response. Looking forward to going through all the tweets complaining about PR for the richest man on earth and seeing how many of them have run stories for anonymous sources at the FBI, CIA, the Pentagon, White House, etc. 
Okay, I got a little more to say about this because at the very top of the program yesterday, I put Kanye because Kanye had this just incredible meltdown with Alex Jones. He goes on the Conspiracy Theorist show and he's just, I, there are things I love about Hitler. The Nazis were kind of cool. I mean, just praising Adolf Hitler, um, one of or perhaps history's worst mass murderers, and Alex Jones was pushing back. Well, I think Hitler was a bad guy who did a lot of bad things. <laughs> As I said, if, you, if Alex Jones is the moderating force in the room, you've got a problem. So now, after being suspended by Musk for posting a picture of a swastika with a star of David, David embedded, Kanye says, I can't even really make sense of this. Am I the only one who thinks Elon could be half Chinese? You ever seen his pics as a child? Take a Chinese genius and mate them with a South African supermodel. And we have an Elon. I say an Elon because they probably made 10 to 30 Elons. And he's, not, and he's the first genetic hybrid that stuck. Well, let's not forget about Obama. I'm sorry for using curse words in church, but I don't have another word for Obama yet. I don't I know what he's saying. Just total meltdown. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Story number two. Everybody's now getting a crack at this, and I see these headlines on a lot of the cable news shows. Trump calls for Constitution to be terminated. Now, when I first saw online headlines about this, I said, okay, this is spin. He didn't really do that. They took something he said out of car. Ah, I was wrong. He did say it. So Trump jumps on the Twitter files as evidence of, quote, massive and widespread fraud and deception, all caps. So that's exaggerating a little bit. I don't really see the fraud here, but okay. He jumps on the Twitter files. This is, this is crap. This is not fair. Um, and he says, working closely with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democratic Party, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner, meaning him, or do you have a new election? Massive fraud of this type allow and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. So he did say it. Uh, he takes, he seizes on this. By the way, he posted this two days before the uh, Georgia Senate runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Do you think that's what the Republican Party wants to be focusing on? He's once again basically saying, I am the rightful president. You should reinstate me. There is, however, the unfortunate, uncomfortable, and unavoidable reality that there is no provision in the Constitution for kicking the guy who was certified as the Electoral College winner out and putting the former guy who thinks he was screwed, in, or calling a new election. And I think if he had just left out that line, but he didn't. Termination of all rules, 
even those found in the Constitution. You know, so much energy, journalistic energy, has been devoted to, you know, finding out behind the scenes. Advisors say Trump is angry about this, or, you know, we told him not to meet with Kanye, or, you know, he, yes, he used asshole countries or whatever. What went on behind the scenes? But Trump, the worst damage to Donald Trump is usually the self-inflicted kind. Now, he didn't put this on Twitter, even though Elon has reinstated him, but, you know, it's gotten a massive amount of coverage, as it should. And the White House responded, Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bass, uh, excuse me, the American Constitution is a sacrosanct document that for over 200 years has guaranteed that freedom and the rule of law prevail in our great country. The Constitution brings the American people together regardless of party and elected leaders swear to uphold it. Remember, when you take the oath, it's like you preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Okay, so here's a political piece. Donald Trump found no support on the Sunday talk shows for his termination of the Constitution. Um, Congressman Mike Turner, Republican from Ohio, it is certainly not consistent with the oath we all take. He told Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation, but he declined to say whether Trump's remarks were disqualifying. And, and that's the thing. You know, the, the story has turned to, well, is this not something that Republicans can say is wrong? Are they okay with the declared candidate and undoubted frontrunner for their party's nomination saying terminate the Constitution or parts of it so that I can be reinstated or get a new election? Um, it's just, what? It, it may, they're all just afraid of him. They're all just afraid he will turn on them. Uh, they sort of overcame that fear when it came to denouncing the anti-Semitism of Kanye West, leaving aside Nick Fuentes. Trump didn't know he was coming, but he since has not denounced it. You know, anti-Semitism. It's a political layup. I denounce all anti-Semitism. Trump hasn't done it. I'm not anti-Trump. I don't think Trump's an anti-Semite. I do think he gave a platform, unknowingly, because Kanye had been on this jihad for weeks. And I think it's fair to point that out. And when asked about it, even Kevin McCarthy criticized him. Mitch McConnell said, you know, nobody who says this, he doesn't think could be elected president. Everybody knew who he was talking about. And all these other senators, some in leadership, came out and did it. Now, terminate the Constitution. Look, they're just hoping it will blow over and they won't have to deal with it. Even Elon Musk tweeted yesterday, the Constitution is greater than any president. End of story. And I haven't even gotten to um, the trial of the Trump organization. Uh, here's a lead paragraph. Donald Trump approved the key aspect of a tax fraud scheme orchestrated by several top executives at his family business, prosecutors said on Friday in their closing arguments. So we'll see what the jury does. This is all about the uh, off-the-book perks that went to the CFO, who was forced to cooperate under a plea agreement. Uh, we'll come back to that. All right, number three. Rich Lowry in National Review. First, he says in a separate short post, Donald Trump suspend the Constitution post, which has to rank among the most lunatic and unworthy things he's ever said had Republicans squirming on the Sunday shows. Uh, okay. But then he goes on to write a column about Ron DeSantis. And he says, Ron DeSantis is gaining ground in a key measure. The derangement primary 
In Lowry's view, an important and unmistakable sign of the potency of a Republican presidential candidate is the kind of treatment he or she gets in the press. Now, he says, the Florida governor is getting bigger practically by the day. The Santis derangement syndrome is beginning to take hold and it's growing. You'd think it wouldn't be possible for DeSantis to hold a candle to Trump. He's having dinner with anti-Semites and openly musing about suspending the Constitution, but somehow the governor's critics still find ways to deem him worse and more dangerous. Okay, let's get some details here. The coverage is part of a familiar pattern going back decades. Reporters dig back into the teenage or college years of Republican presidents or plausible GOP candidates and inevitably find them wanting. They're also made out to be budding authoritarians. Uh, Look back on finally today as a class act from a bygone era, George W. Bush got this treatment and perversely was considered a semi-fascist throughout his presidency. The hostile focus on DeSantis now is reaching back to his teens and 20s. The New Yorker found someone from his Yale baseball team who said, he's always loved embarrassing and humiliating people. I'm speaking for others. He was the biggest dick we knew. Okay, so one person from college says he's a dick. New York Times did a report, on, and I talked about this, on how he worked as a prep school instructor after getting out of college. One African-American student said he was mean to me and hostile, not aggressively but passively, because I was black. So Larry sums up by saying, this is not to deny that Bush and the Santas had their failings as young men. Who didn't? But these kinds of stories are so predictable, they almost write themselves. Then there are outlandish attacks on DeSantis as a heartless would-be dictator who as president would make Trump look like Dwight Eisenhower. Okay. Um, He has a point. Uh, Is it derangement? I don't know. Certainly people on the left are saying, you know, DeSantis could be even worse because he doesn't have Trump's baggage, but he does all these things. But, you know, if you look at what he's done in Florida, he seems to be pretty popular there and not just among right-wingers. Okay, story number four, Dan Balls. In the Washington Post the chief correspondent, talking about the primary process. Now, it's fascinating. Look, every president can sort of dictate to the DNC or the RNC how he wants the primary calendar to look like. And as you may have heard, after saying nothing, Joe Biden has now declared, and the DNC has basically said, okay, that South Carolina will be the first in the nation primary. Obviously, for years and years and years and years, it's been Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire primary. Now, I had no doubt that Iowa caucuses were after the horrible... It's it's way too complicated anyway. And that botching of the counting uh, until we finally find out that Pete Buttigieg won last time. And so Iowa is not even in in the early window of opening primaries, and that's sort of the punishment for Iowa. New Hampshire has a state law that has to go first. So New Hampshire may just try to jump the gun here. But anyway, Biden won South Carolina first. The next week would be New Hampshire and Nevada, followed by Georgia, which nobody saw coming, followed by Michigan. And Biden also doesn't want any more caucuses. And, I, you know, I don't really see the point of caucuses. I mean, obviously, they tilt toward the activists who will show up in a high school gym at a certain time. But why not just have primaries? But I don't know that that he's going to get his way on that. In any event, look, this was done because if Biden gets a challenger in 
the 2024 race, he wants to be able to win easily. And South Carolina is the state where he won his candidacy. Remember, Iowa and New Hampshire did so poorly, like fourth in one and fifth in the other. The Democrats wrote his political obituary. He never should have gotten in the race. He's out of touch. He's too old. Uh, he's not woke enough. And, you know, just nice try, Joe, but time to pack it up. Go home. We're done with you. And then with Jim Clyburn's help, he went South Carolina. Why? Because South Carolina has a sizable black vote. And most of that went for Joe Biden. And I have to say, I think something is lost here by not having a small state because South Carolina, you know, is not a tiny state. And, you know, to, to compete in a diverse state like that. And I get, I mean, Biden just comes out and says voters of color should have a voice in the first contest. And it is a fact that Iowa is a rural, mostly white state, and New Hampshire is a rural, mostly white state. But one advantage of a small state is you got to do a lot of retail politics. And you could be a relative political unknown who doesn't have a lot of money who can break from the pack. That's what happened with Jimmy Carter in 76 with the Iowa caucuses. That's what happened um, on the Democratic side with Pete Buttigieg, you know, a small town mayor nobody had ever heard of uh, winning. On the Republican side, you have people like Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee uh, winning. And then, and Ted Cruz, and, and then, you know, not necessarily staying the course, but at least they had a shot. Um, it is time to stop taking these voters for granted and give them a louder and earlier vote, voice, I should say, in the process, says the president of the United States. Um, and the story here says, those principles happen to align with Biden's self-interest, do you think? Um so that's raw politics at work. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number five, speaking of President Biden. Politico has a piece about books. The approximately 27,112 books written about Donald Trump. Uh, okay, I'm making that up. So there are a couple of books due out about the administration's first two years. Um, then there's one by New York Times reporter Katie Rogers on Jill Biden. There are others, but DC readers won't need to rush to the nearest, uh, nearest Ikea to buy extra bill sh bookshelves anytime soon. Big change from what Washington is used to. It points out to the bestsellers of, by uh, Bob Woodward, Michael Wolf. I mean, my book on Trump did pretty well. Looking at the first year, the media and Donald Trump. Back in the Clinton presidency, you know, there were uh, lots of books about Bill, given his colorful private life. And even, you know, Primary Colors, the uh, novel loosely based on the Clintons. And then there were these books on campaign gurus. I mean, look, uh, Steve Bannon, David Pluff. Carl Rove, James Carville had all written or been the subject of books. But when Biden won the presidency, you know, you didn't really have that. Um, the only people who scored books were members of his family, like his sister and strategist, Valerie. Son Hunter wrote a book. Um, Valerie Biden Owens' book has sold 8,455 hardcover copies. Hunter Biden, over 26,000. 
Um, contrast this with psychologist Mary Trump, her 2020 tell-all about her uncle. It has sold over a million copies in hardcover alone. And look, it, I mean, Joe Biden has been around for a very long time. He's a low-key president. And there's not, if there's a lot of back and forth drama within the Biden administration, we generally don't get to hear about it. Uh, the people who ordinarily might be interesting, um, the strategists like um, Anita Dunn, who returned to the White House, um, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, not the world's most fascinating character, not, not a commentary on his diplomatic mission. Uh, same goes for other cabinet members. As you go down the list, it's like a rerun of no drama Obama. I mean, the most recognizable personality to come out of the Biden administration, who's not written a book, but probably would do well if she did, was Jen Psaki. Because she was on TV all the time and she just, you know, sparring with reporters and she was just interesting. But there's really no other. And that's the way Biden wants it, by the way. He doesn't want superstars being on the cover of Time magazine, as Bannon was in the first months of the Trump administration. And he doesn't particularly care about being on the cover of Time magazine or having an interesting Twitter. It's just not the way he's built, the way his presidency is built. So there's no flood of Biden books. There's no great scandal to write about. Um, maybe that will change in the next two years. But um, that big payday for journalists, not looking so big in this administration. Hey, once again, hope you had a good weekend. Media Bug segments online. Thank you for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. And we're back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.